welcome to The Holdup, the podcast where we re-examine all the pop culture that you used to love. Welcome back, dear listeners. As always, I'm your co-host, Kaylee. And I'm Sarah, and this week we're going to be talking about the classic sitcom, Friends. They just had their reunion episode on HBO, so the series is topical as ever. It's still a hit, even though it's been off the air for, well, almost two decades. It's crazy. It's been off the air for longer than it was on the air than I was alive. Whatever. I'm 32. You do the math. But basically, you know, it's been off the air for longer than I was alive when it was on. Anyway, it's late. We're fine. We get it. But, you know, I I watched the reunion. It was a lot of fun. There were a lot of there were some like what moments, Um, you know, cough cough uh the weird fashion show with Cara Delevingne and Justin Bieber but otherwise it was delightful to watch and I'm excited to you know dig into this and hear what you think um Sarah what are your early memories of watching Friends and what did you think of the reunion I was a Friends devotee from the very beginning I discovered it when I was eight years old um and I I don't even know why I liked it I think one thing that's nice about Friends is it's a show about people who genuinely like each other. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple premise. When you're a child, it's very easy to understand. You're like, oh, these people, they're just, they're friends with each other and they hang out, right? Um, and so it operates on several levels. Like there are a lot of jokes that like you can understand as an eight-year-old and then there are other things that are over your head, but there's kind of something for everyone in this show. Like, you know, there's Marcel the monkey, which is funny to you if you're a child, right? Like there are lots of things. And then there are, there's kind of like bot, risque body humor if you're an adult. <laughs> but there's really truly is a joke for every sensibility. Um, it's a pretty universal show. Like, I mean, it's one of the few things that all my siblings and I could agree upon and enjoyed. So I have always liked the show. I've rewatched it not as many times as you have, Kaylee, but I have rewatched it many times. And I found myself after the reunion actually going and watching some of my favorite friend shows. Like I think I watched about 10 episodes this weekend while doing other things because it is really comforting. And I don't know if that's the tone of the show originally or the fact that it's comforting because it's like basically you know, written on my DNA at this point. Like the show is so a part of me. Um, the reunion was interesting. Um, it was funny how Lisa Kudrow does not know who Lady Gaga is, clearly, very obviously. Um, and also, I feel like Matt LeBlanc is the only one who has watched the show. He was the only one who remembers. For sure. It. He was the only, like, he'd be like, yeah, that's the episode where XYZ thing happened. The others are like, huh? Huh? <laughs> and then Lisa Kudrow just flat out was like, I didn't watch the later seasons. <laughs> I just didn't watch the show that I was on. So that was kind of funny. Um, but I think one thing that the reunion does make clear is that the show means different things to different people. And because it is such a rich text, it's 10 seasons, so much happens, it evolves. There usually is a plot line that really resonates with you. No, no matter who you are, or what your life experience in my, in my experience. Now, listen, do I think that the show resonates with everyone? Probably what I just said was wrong. It resonates with most of the people 
I know, and I come from a fairly privileged background, the show does not do well with race. It does not do well with sexual diversity. It, I mean, it does really, really poorly with like, it's very homophobic. <laughs> like That is true. Um, but, you know, there are certain storylines that were very progressive, like Rachel Green deciding to be a single mom. Um, Rachel Green running away from her wedding, right? Like the idea that like, you didn't have to get married just because someone chose you. All of these things, like, I, there's some very progressive moments within the series that I think are quite captivating. At least they were for me. And a lot of people I know will say like, listen, I have a critique of the show. The show is imperfect, but there was this one moment that really resonated with me when one when character X did Y. I know. What do you think, Kaylee? Yeah, I agree. Look, like, you know, I really enjoyed watching the reunion. Um, you know, of course there were like some bizarre moments and it was like deeply overproduced, but like you, I, and I think it was also overproduced because it was happening during the early parts of COVID. Um, and so I, you know, at first when I was like, oh, it's so overproduced, there's no, you know, opportunity for spontaneity. I was like, oh, they can't have an opportunity for spontaneity because they all need to be distancing from one another and they need to probably comply with a million different kinds of, you know, insurance liabilities and things like that. So kind of in hindsight, it makes sense to me that it was so overproduced because they had to time everyone's entrances and exits so exact. Um, so I'm actually more able to give it a bit more credit. Um, but beyond that, you know, like, you know, I did not grow up in a TV watching household. Um, but one of the shows that I do remember early on is Friends. Um, and my sister's best friend watched Friends every single Thursday night. Um, and, you know, I remember coming to school the next day in high school and asking her like, what happened the night before? You know, cause like we were not a TV house. Um, and so I remember like binge watching all of friends basically as soon as I could, like as soon as I was old enough to have a credit card and Netflix was a thing. Um, and I watched all of friends and, you know, since then it's really been like my constant background noise show while I'm doing my makeup, sometimes while I'm showering, while I'm making food, while I'm cleaning, like it's just the show that's on in the background. And sometimes I genuinely like sit down and watch it. Um, and there is a lot there that I definitely did not pick up on um, when I was younger or even in my twenties. Um, and, you know, I'm, a big rewatcher of all shows because the show stays the same, but I'm different. It's like reading a, it's like rereading a book, you know, my sister kind of makes fun of me cause she's not a rewatcher. Um, but she just rewatched something and she was like, I understand the appeal. Um, and so that's what friends is to me. My, with my friend, Dina, she rewatches Gilmore girls. Everyone kind of has their show. Um, and so friends is that to me. Um, and, you know, of course, yeah, the show is homophobic. It is deeply racist. It's fat phobic. Um, there are a lot of issues with this show. It's classist to a certain degree, but not, they complicate 
class a tiny little bit, um, not a ton, um, but uh, no buts, it is. Um, and, you know, we can say that for what it is, but I think Sarah and I, we're not, we're certainly not gonna be the first people who say it. And I think if you have listened to the podcast thus far and you know Sarah and I, you probably have a good understanding of the things that like we find problematic about friends. Um, that being said, like, it's hard to say that a show like this doesn't get enough credit because it absolutely does. Um, but I think people have really enjoyed like taking friends down a peg over the last many years. And like, I, it's my personal opinion that like, we are all squared away with what this show did well and what it didn't do well and the things it could have done better at the time and the things that it wasn't the right time to do. Like, I think we're at that point and we can kind of enjoy it for what it is. Yeah, well, I mean, it was created by David Crane and Marta Kaufman who loosely based it on their own 20s in New York, right? Where they were looking for love and their elevator pitch, as they say in the special is, it's about that time in your 20s where your friends are your family. And that's a compelling topic and truth be told, this show was very important in academic circles because it understood the concept of chosen family before sociologists were doing a ton of research on it. And it actually inspired a lot of research on chosen family, right? The fact that people were delaying milestones or even forgoing milestones that used to be just that you did by road, right? Um, people were getting married older or not at all. They were having kids older or not at all. Um, they couldn't afford to rent apartments on their own because the world was getting more expensive. So they were having roommates and they were having these relationships that were sometimes very deep and satisfying with the roommates and by turns also acrimonious and infuriating, right? Like one of the things this show does well is it does start to grapple with the way adulthood is changing and people will call it extended adolescence. I don't think that's unfair because it assumes that you can't be an adult unless you are married with children, which is a very heteronormative definition of adulthood, right? What it deals with is a demographic shift and people, like the redefinition of adulthood, where people now can kind of customize their adulthood experience to a certain extent. There's still a lot of social pressure to live a certain way. And you see that on this show, right? Like you see Monica freaking out about wanting to get married and her parents mocking her and saying she never will. And that's why she ends up hooking up with Chandler and they end up falling in love, right? Like the show is actually grappling with a moment in time where the norms were changing. The social norms were changing radically and the, the older generation, like the parents weren't used to that. And so there was a tremendous amount of pressure on young people to conform. And when they couldn't, because they either like, you know, couldn't get that great job because it no longer was that guaranteed that if you went to university, you'd become an executive or they were taking longer to settle down because dating was changing. They were experiencing a lot of flack and a lot of discrimination. And the only other people who understood were their peers, right? And that's why they become this chosen family unit because they understand each other, right? Like their parents don't get it. So in many ways, the show is about modernity. It's about changing relationships. It's about the realities of living in an urban center. And yes, it's a very 
privileged white view of that like yes there are jewish characters in the show kind of flattens out that difference so it doesn't feel um as culturally specific as a show like transparent does but a lot of that probably as emily newsbaum says i went to see her speak once and she explained her she sort of gave a defense of friends mm-hmm. um and i, I don't want to i'm paraphrasing her but what I remember her saying, and this is my, my recollection, so it could be incorrect. Um, what she essentially said was at the time, what they told TV writers, because there were a lot of TV writers who were from Jewish backgrounds. I mean, Marta Kaufman talked about her rabbi on the Friends special. They would say, write Yiddish, cast British. There was this, and there still is a lot of anti-Semitism. And there was this um, casting bias where waspy people were the ones who would get cast and they would play but they would play these jewish roles as long as they didn't make them too culturally specific right because network notes do play a huge role in what gets put on tv in the 90s like i think people don't appreciate enough why certain things happened in the 90s like shows weren't as diverse and that is awful like it's terrible that actors of color were not getting roles it's terrible that like how little representation there was for queer people for non-binary people that's not coming specifically usually from the showrunners that is coming Mm -hmm. from the networks like if we want to blame people usually the networks were the ones with more power and i'm not trying to say crane and kaufman have no power and especially towards the end of the show's run, they definitely had more power and probably could have done more than they did. Um, but I do think we have to understand, like, saying it's a product of its time is not an absolute defense and does not make up for the transphobia. It does not make fun of, make up for all the gay panic. But you do, when you look at Friends, have to take into account a little bit, like, what could Friends have been if it were made today, or if they'd given Crane and Kaufman the free reign to actually write their vision, right? Um, And I think it might have been a very different show. Like, they throw in the odd reference to Judaism, but they might actually have been able to represent what it was like to be, I mean, a Jewish Gen Xer growing up, I mean, and living in New York and, you know, all the, like, obviously they couldn't represent all of the Jewish Gen Xers. There are lots of different diverse experiences of what it is to be Jewish. But I do wonder, like, what's the show we could have had? What would have been interrogated about religion that they don't get to interrogate here? Like, they never really mentioned the fact that Chandler's not Jewish when he and Monica get together. Mm-hmm. And probably because they thought that that would have been too edgy to really highlight that, right? That's probably what the network thought. But mm-hmm. if you make it today, maybe that becomes a conversation at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, Ross is Jewish and him and Emily get married in a church because that's where her parents got married. Mm-hmm. Um, it like, and you know, and this still happens today. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, that entire cast. <laughs> is not um and it's like okay if we're going to talk about authenticity and representation for other groups that are non-dominant and marginalized um then we also need to apply that to 
an ethno religious group as well. Um, and yeah, like as a Jewish person, I do find it really obnoxious and frustrating um, because there are a ton of great Jewish actors and actresses and look like it's not um, whatever. Yeah, Amy Sherman Palladino needs to stop her tyranny of <laughs> casting. It's enough. Um, but yeah, like when it comes to shows like Friends, you know, it is really frustrating, um, you know, to look back and be like, uh, this holiday armadillo nonsense, uh, it's enough. Um, and you know what happened with other shows at the, at the time as well, like Seinfeld, like George Costanza, is a deeply written as a deep, deeply Jewish person, <laughs> like completely coded as like the nebishy, overtly, you know, stereotypically like miserly, like like all of these like really awful Jewish stereotypes. Um, but he's not Jewish, jo George Alexander, but also. I mean, Jason Alexander isn't Jewish and that's fine because George Costanza as a character, him and his family are not a Jewish family, but everything bad, like every single terrible New York, you know, assimilated Jewish stereotype is written into George Costanza. Um, I find it funny because I'm Jewish and I can find that funny, but <laughs> looking at it with your head slightly turned to the right, you're like, oh, this is so anti-Semitic I could cry um it's just like Larry David just like put all of his internalized anti-Semitism into one character which he's allowed to do because he's a Jewish person but um it's it's really frustrating and it still happens and that's absolutely you know what happened on Friends as well um and yeah it is like a bit of a capsule capsule project of what you can look like look at and Emily Nussbaum was absolutely correct um and yeah and it's like still happening and it's just it's it's just annoying it's just like oh like I don't need every Jewish character to be played by a Jewish actor or actress but like I do need some of these stereotypes to go away <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah and it's also a show where the characters at certain points they care about religion at certain points they, like they're so inconsistently written when it comes to their relationship to religion and I think in part that might be network notes that's my theory because it, in every other respect these characters are pretty consistent um mm -hmm. it's just when it comes to religion that they're very inconsistent like you have I mean religion at one point means so much to them that you have the holiday armadillo but then you have like Ross getting married in church. So it's just like <laughs> um, that representation. And if the, if they were gonna do that, then you'd think they'd interrogate it more. Like why now will he get married in a church? Like, and is that supposed to symbolize that like Emily is kind of like railroading him? Like, I don't know what it's because they don't talk about it. It You never know. So that anyway, what was supposed to be or could have been a very culturally specific show that would have definitely been a victory for representation on TV, kind of couldn't be because network TV execs were so obsessed 
with making things palatable to like waspy people. Um, yeah, and it's never fully, it's never explicit as to whether or not Rachel Green is Jewish because she's entirely coded as the 90s, 90s, early 2000s Jewish American princess. You know, this New York girl who goes from her, um, you know, who goes from her father's house to her husband's house. Um, she explicitly says in the first episode, like, the reason why I'm like, Monica says like, you can't be dependent on your father forever. And she was like, yeah, that's why I'm getting married. That's why I was gonna get married. Um, she's like completely coded as that stereotype. Um, and yet at the same, you know, she's got the, the big nose that, you know, she needed, uh, well, doesn't need, but got plastic surgery for. Um, ahem, let's look at some, awful stereotypes and uh propaganda from like Nazi Germany about Jewish noses um but she's completely written like that and yet not one word about um what her like ethnic background might be um and so yeah she's like kind of just like this place holder for this kind of New York Jewish young woman um yeah, which is just very bizarre that they never say it because um, I don't really know. It's a convenient package of stereotypes that doesn't really get named. Um, I don't know. Uh, well, I thought, and this might be, I might not be remembering the show correctly, but I thought yeah. they kind of implied that she was half Jewish, that her mother was not Jewish and her father was possible i maybe i just assume that because marlo thomas plays her mother and i know just because i know marlo thomas thomas because i mm -hmm. love that girl i know mm -hmm. she's not jewish so that mm -hmm. was i guess what i read into but that's the thing like not enough is said so you can kind of just project your own narrative onto it about what about what's yeah. taking place but like marlo thomas who is um it, I love her. I'm obsessed with her because I loved that girl. Also, she's Lebanese and mm. I'm part Armenian and those are not the same thing at all. But I liked that she was part Middle Eastern. Um, I There's not, you know, rep, sometimes we're all desperate for representation, right? So growing up, that was one of the things I liked about her. Um, and so I guess I sort of maybe projected onto Rachel Green the background I wanted her to have, which was the background that was most similar to mine, which was like she had this mother who was Lebanese and a father who was who was Jewish. I'm not half Jewish. I'm just saying I, I think I wanted her mother to be actually Lebanese because I knew she was in real life. And I and they don't really explain to you what her mother's ethnocultural background is. So it can be whatever you want it to be. They don't explain anyone's except for Joey is Joey is just like deeply Italian, which is great. Um, it's like awesome, but you know, and it is you know, the way that it's written into this show or not written in. Uh, like, I agree with you in terms of the fact that like the writers and the producers like were probably all very deeply Jewish, and you know, had to, you know, wanted to find ways to write that identity into the show and got network notes that they couldn't. Where, you know, for like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, like it's not really the same thing because like Amy Sherman Palladino has this like pathological obsession 
with New York Jewish culture that I find actually like veers on the fetishistic, which is like, why, why do you feel like you so strongly need to tell this story? You tell this story. I don't get it. Um, and like I said, what I said, and I'm not taking it back. Um, and I love Gilmore Girls, um, but whatever. Um, so like, but those are two different things, right? And like, when it comes to, and like, I'm no Seinfeld scholar, I'm no Larry David scholar, but like having watched Seinfeld, I'm like, oh, like, I think this might've been what was happening with George. Um, but yeah, so like when it comes to, friends that's yeah I, that's kind of how I read it um yeah because they're I mean that's as like diverse as the show gets it's like yeah it well mm -hmm. it's pretty much there you you can count almost on one hand the number of times racialized people have meaningful speaking parts in any episode um but then there are some victories for representation I mean Ross's wife, Carol, ex-wife Carol, has a gay wedding. And it's, at the end of the day, while Ross has this rivalry with Carol's new partner, at the end of the day, the kind of, the message, the takeaway is like, he should be happy for her because she's happy and love is love. Like, it's kind of, it's like the ultimate message of that episode. Um, and I mean, in the 90s, there were, wasn't anywhere else where you were seeing two women getting married on tv like you weren't so that like obviously anytime you have 10 seasons of anything it's gonna be mixed bag right like yeah. um but that was a huge step forward in terms of representation so i mean and also even like the way they do the co-parenting relationship is while ross has his moments of acrimony with you know his son's mothers it's a pretty functional parenting relationship like yeah at no point did they get into a protracted custody battle where like he tries to take the kids away from the kid away from them like everyone for the most part respects like that ben is belongs to all of them and that need he needs love for all of them like as many zingers this there are at the end of the day like Ben is the focus and no one is trying to take Ben away from anyone else really mm -hmm. so that's a victory too I think yeah absolutely I mean they're they, they did like manage to write in a lot of you know interesting storylines like you said you know the gay gay relationship gay marriage co-parenting um Rachel becoming a single mom Rachel resisting marriage at a young age mm -hmm. um uh the other one you know like Chandler's parents an interesting storyline that's um, not it's funny that's the one where like they definitely handle that the worst of all of their attempts to do representation like that does not hold up like it's so transphobic they're constantly misgender misgendering. I mean, the Kathleen Turner character. Uh, yeah, completely. Like, yeah, it's and while I mean, well, on one level, the message is like Chandler 
should reconcile with his estranged parent because his like his mother loves him right i mean the person that he refers to as his dad who is really one of his two moms loves him and didn't betray him just the kathleen turner character just wants to live her truth and be herself right like and the show like in the end kathleen turner attends the wedding like that happens she is included but the show still makes the fact that she's transgender the butt of the joke way too often for that to be for you to overlook it like it's never okay to make transgender people the butt of the joke but like like you can't say this was accidental like it wasn't accidental it's absolutely something that the writers think is funny like they think that it is funny that she is transgender and um you know they don't think it's funny that anyone is cisgender so it ends up being really offensive and discriminatory super offensive and discriminatory and they really could have done a lot better and I mean if they wanted to write that in and the network was was resistant they just should have they just should have cut it like they just should have cut it early and like Chandler's like great tragedy could have been that his parents just got divorced and they didn't need to write in this whole extra layer yeah um, so it was just very bizarre. But one of the other great things that they did, you know, was write in an adoption story, yep. you know, which is awesome. I mean, there's still a huge taboo against infertility and adoption in general. Yep. So that uh, was really great. Mm -hmm. It's one um, of the few infertility stories on TV that doesn't end with a pregnancy. And that mm -hmm. is really progressive because so many infertility stories are just used to get a season's worth of plots, right? I'm thinking mm -hmm. about Mad About You, right? Where like, it ends with them conceiving. Like they don't even go through IVF or anything. All of this infertility just ends in a really neat and tidy way on a season finale, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a contemporary show. Like, I mean, it was a contemporary with friends. So, and there are plenty of other shows that have done that, like used infertility for jokes and to get some plot lines. And then it just ends with a conventional, easy to achieve pregnancy. So I respected that friends like grappled with what infertility meant. And then Monica and Chandler together as a couple make a decision, like, how are we going to proceed? How are we going to start a family? And then they adopt and like the adoption storyline is done in like a pretty progressive way. They get to know the birth mother. You get to know her. She's developed as a character. Anna Ferris does an amazing job playing Erica. Uh, so that also was really cool and, and unique. Like that's not something you see on TV all the time. I also, my favorite line I think ever on a sitcom is when, Monica's son is born and she says to him I'm gonna love you so much no woman is ever gonna be good enough for you and yeah like, that is like that is the problem with every man you ever met on tinder <laughs> so true and after Ben is born she says I'll always have gum her reactions to babies being born are amazing like that they gave her some good one-liners um so uh, yeah it's it's a good like it does really, it has a high standard deviation as a show, right? I mean, I know you and I have both have talked before about how like Rachel Green in some ways is a feminist hero of ours. Like she broke off an engagement 
which like and resisted marriage she found a career when her family basically told her she was too stupid to have a career right she resisted being pigeonholed and all that internalized misogyny like she deprogrammed herself and became a super successful fashion executive she also like didn't listen to all the people who kind of dismissed fashion like Ross is such a jerk to her better job and dismisses its importance and she doesn't listen and then she ends up excelling and becoming so so influential in the world of fashion design um and so I've always admired that character like in some ways I almost felt like she was the precursor to Elle Woods like like would Elle Woods have existed had Rachel Green not existed 100 percent 100 percent not like I, yeah Rachel Green like is that person for everyone and yeah I think like she is very much the heroine of this show to Mm -hmm. me yeah Mm -hmm. I mean and I I mean I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk more about Phoebe I mean I think we're just getting there another um, feminist but, character in some ways yeah totally and I mean by the time we meet Phoebe you know she is stable she's working but she you know even from the first episode talks about how she grew up base you know homeless unhoused um and that is something that you don't you don't hear about a lot anymore even um and that is something that is really important and you know I think I don't know what I don't know why they wrote that representation into the show maybe they thought it was a good plot point I don't know but it was consistent she never dropped that narrative it never went away it always stayed with her even you know by the time she marries Paul Rudd (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Paul Rudd is in everything I know I know I know no it's it's a great aspect I mean it's a great example of writing an inclusive narrative and also they use her I think to call the others out on their privilege right like anytime they have a problem she'll often like work in a one-liner about her mother dying by suicide or like being homeless or any of the other really horrific things she went through the characters experienced a lot of trauma and so definitely I feel like they wrote that character in because this, the writers were self-aware enough to know like all these other people yes have very privileged person problems <laughs> like we get it we get it that's the story we're choosing to tell but at the end of the day the stakes for these people are low right like mm-hmm. no one is ever going to be unhoused they all have family to fall back on the stakes are going to be like can Monica have the fancy wedding she wants? Or like, does Rachel get the job at Gucci, right? Like there is no real drama to their lives. And so the show I think gives you Phoebe so that you have some perspective. And I think that's really clever writing. For sure, I agree because sometimes the stakes of shows, I mean, you know, last week I talked about really loving Younger and how Younger is just, amazing because the stakes are so low all the time and everything gets resolved extremely quickly Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of quick paced catharsis throughout the show which is just like really lovely Mm -hmm. and now that we're talking about friends it's made me realize that it's kind of the same thing you never really feel like any of the friends are in existential or mortal danger the biggest problem yeah that they have is like will Ross end up with Rachel now or 
up with culture. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, and so the problems are never really that, that big, but there is a lot of like emotional, you know, like one of my favorite things is when, you know, Chandler and Monica have their first fight and Chandler is like, well, I guess we're broken up now. And Monica's like, what do you, what do you mean? We just had a fight and then we made up. And he's like, oh, and she's like, yeah, that's what a relationship is, you know, like mm-hmm. choosing to stay together. And he was like, oh, and when I was an adult and first saw that when I was like in my early 20s, I was like, oh, and like, that's a real thing. But I was like, stakes, solo, like, it's fine. Yeah, the stakes are pretty low. It's like, which one of these attractive people will end up with the other super attractive young person? Like, it's it's not a really dramatic narrative, but that's also why it's comforting, right? Like, yeah. uh, sometimes it's fun to turn on a show and watch a bunch of people having a good time together who genuinely like each other. Like, there are lots of other shows I enjoy watching that challenge me, that teach me things. Um, and sometimes you just want to watch Friends because it's fun as Malala said to watch Monica and Ross do the routine it's like honestly you know what the world is so intense we all just need to like take it down a notch and that's what friends really does for me it's um not everything needs to be super deep and this comes from somebody who weekly records a podcast where we talk about Drew Barrymore movies whether or not they've held up over time yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would have to say, like, the way the male characters are written does not hold up super well. They're all deeply misogynistic. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ross is very entitled to Rachel. Um, I do believe they are on a break. Like, I will defend him on that. That I think that's true. And I think that that's canon at this point at the special. They all answer that. And they're like, yeah, they were on a break. I think the consensus is he did not cheat on her. Having said that, that's not enough to make you a good boyfriend. <laughs> like he makes fun of her career ambitions. He like is super entitled and possessive. In the end, he basically makes her makes her give up his her dream job so they can be together. Like it doesn't occur to him that like he too can move to France, right? Like he is a jerk. He marries Emily even though he's not in love with her, which is a dick thing to do um so there there's that like he on so many levels i mean elizabeth the elizabeth storyline the fact that he dates his student and we can't say that it was a different time and that wasn't wrong because they do mention at several points if if columbia finds out or nyu wherever he teaches you are fired like this there was a sexual harassment policy written in and he was breaking it. So it was abundantly clear to him that this was wrong. And his friends also told him that this was wrong. And yet he did it anyway. He dates a 20 year old student of his. It's disgusting. The power imbalance cannot be ignored. And that is enough, I think, in my mind, like when you combine that with the fact that he's a possessive boyfriend, with the fact that he marries Emily when he's not in love with her and humiliates her at the altar, he's just irredeemable. Like he's terrible. There's nothing good about him. Like Joey, is he like 
casually sexist. He objectifies all women. Yes. Is he also like a good friend when he has to be? Sure. Chandler, while a deeply homophobic character, is at least a good friend to Rachel. Like they go out for lunch all the time when they're at work. He never tries to sleep with her. Joey and Chandler have some moments that redeem them and you're like, okay, you're not a total write-off. Ross is just the worst human being ever. Ross is the worst. And like when Rachel's pregnant and she is, you know, have she's like being very demanding and she says to Ross, like, I just want you to be here all the time responding to my every need and every whim. And he's like, okay, fine, I'll do that. And she's like, but I'm being so unreasonable. And he's like, you get to be unreasonable, you're pregnant. I'm like, that's the bare minimum. Like, yes, you got a woman pregnant and Mm -hmm. she's having that baby and you have to be there. Like, how is that like a storyline of like Ross being redeemable as a character because he like won't step out on his pregnant baby mama? Like what? Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, like Chandler like consistently is a good friend. He does give good advice. to people all the time but joey really is a good friend um Mm -hmm. and he is done by the worst in the show like i think everybody gets a happy ending except for joey well because Um, he's a spin-off yeah but like i I don't absent like that spin-off was never good yeah i know the spin-off doesn't take off so when you look back in retrospect you're like so what just happens to joey like there's no resolution yeah like also I also remember the spinoff like coming pretty late in the game. I don't think they gave it like a very sincere, but I don't remember. I'm not like a scholar on this. I I watched some of it. It wasn't, you know, the second season was better than the first, but I think they blew the season, first season so terribly that like it, there was just no coming back from that. Um, It was odd because he didn't talk about his friends and so you're like well it doesn't feel like a spin-off the character just is the same name um Mm. there was no continuity and it just i think it felt false to most people like you can't go from seeing all these people every single day to just cold turkey not even thinking about them ever Mm um and so it just wasn't the right way to do a spin-off and also like they could have at least written in like he got a big show in la yeah that's the thing like they didn't they did not finale it's like oh he's moving to la he's got a big show like they didn't set it up the spinoff a so you weren't as interested in the forthcoming spinoff but also he doesn't get a happy ending that's the thing it's like yeah matt leblanc the person got a happy ending because he got more money (laughs) he got more money but um joey the character you know, and that's the thing. That's one of the things that I liked about the reunion. They said, you know, when you get your family, you, it's not that you no longer need your chosen family. It's just that like, you are building your biological family now or not biological, but your nuclear family. But like, Joey didn't get that because no, he even, just yeah. yeah. Cause like Phoebe, you know, says to Mike that she wants a baby and it's, so it's rude man justice for joey yeah and i mean what what martyr coffin says yeah in the special about how like 
when you start a nuclear family, that often means the end of your chosen family. And it doesn't, listen, it means your chosen family, you have to renegotiate things. And some people for sure stay very close with their friends. And that is something I aspire to do myself as somebody who is married and has a kid. Um, I aspire to prioritize friendship. And I do think the social norms are changing a bit with millennials. Um, I, I do think like, now we've had a couple generations of people having friendships that mean a lot to them. And so we're starting to figure out how to prioritize friendships while also doing things like getting married and having kids, even though it's hard to balance. But it is like there is a sense of loss and a sense of melancholy where, and that's what the finale does so beautifully, right? Where it's like this time in their lives is over. They have to give back the keys, um, final shots of the people. Like you were, you got to watch this time in their lives and it's it's over, right? It's so connected to time and place. And if you change the time, if you change the location, you don't have the ingredients for this amazing relationship that was so central to their lives for so long, but at the end of the day was temporary. Um, and also like to an extent, that is what was expected of your so-called extended adolescence. You were allowed to have your twenties to have fun, but at that time, there was still a tremendous amount of social pressure to grow up in your 30s, <laughs> like grow up, I mean, in quotation marks, like to then go do what regular Americans did in their 20s, in the 50s, to do that in your 30s. Like it was the idea was like you had a bonus decade to be a 20 something, but you had to settle down eventually and have the conventional American dream or you were deemed a failure, right? Like that was essentially where we were with the narrative at the time, right? Like there, I mean, Seinfeld was considered a show about nothing. And those people were considered terrible because they had the audacity to be like single and kind of like goofing off in their thirties. Yeah. <laughs> those characters were detested because they didn't conform and they didn't like quote unquote grow up. So, I mean, friends in some ways, the ending is pretty conservative and pretty traditional because they do go except for Joey and live the lives they're expected to live. Even Phoebe, who was the least traditional character at the start of the show, goes and gets married to this guy who like comes from money and they're going to go have kids uh, together and live this very traditional life where she'll just be like the mom at the PTA who's like a little kooky, but she's still the mom at the PTA. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, like, you know, Phoebe, I think it's probably season eight, maybe late, late season eight, where like, you know, Ross says to her just one day at the coffee shop, he's just like, you know, I think it's great. You just go dating man to man, you do whatever you want, you don't get really hung up on anybody, breakups aren't that hard for you, and you don't seem to really want to be attached. And she's like, I do want to be attached. I do want to get married. And then, and Ross is like, cool. And then like, then she meets Mike. Like she just decides one day she's like, ah, yeah, you're right. I'm actually done with dating and I do want to commit. And she just like does. And yeah. like, that is, I would say like somewhat realistic for some like more securely attached people who can just like kind of decide one day to be like, I'm done with this, I'm ready to settle down. And I think that that is also like pretty valid representation because, you know, typically women are 
portrayed as being like, well, kind of like Monica, like, you know, pressured and obsessed with, you know, settling down and getting married and, you know, being single is the mark that, you know, something's quote unquote wrong with you. Whereas like Phoebe never really had that. Um, The complex about like being single at 30, like Rachel Green does that whole, there's that whole episode about like her crisis when she's single and 30, which in some ways like was just a reflection of the way women were pitied and pop culture was kind of done with you if you were single and 30 like that was I mean not all in her head at the time like it really wasn't um but Phoebe never gives in to that social pressure to settle down by a certain age like she is not conventional like that I do think though that Monica in some ways like her character while she buys into traditional values and judges herself against them the way they write the character is a satire and pushes back, right? Like I was rewatching the episode where she and Chandler get married and the next episode where they're like checking out of the honeymoon suite mm-hmm. is hilarious because so she's funny. like, yeah, I'm checking out the bridal suite. Never going to be a bride again. No, I'm just someone's wife. <laughs> and so it's a clever nod at the fact that like heterosexuality for a lot of women in a lot of marriages, especially like traditional marriages, is a really terrible deal and being a bride is like what a lot of women are told to aspire to but then you've got to go do the unsexy stuff and be the wife right and she's having that revelation like I wanted to be the bride I wanted everyone to think I'd made it I'd achieved like success by the heteronormative standards of our society I wanted to wear the white dress dress and have everyone to congratulate me and now it's over and now like I don't get that anymore like now I just have to go and be someone's wife and the way that operates in North America in the 90s is a really bad deal. <laughs> it is like really depressing and actually like one of the reasons why like kind of don't want to get married. Like I just because then that come down I feel like is really really hard um, and you don't get it unless you have kids and not everyone wants to have kids. Not everyone is able to have kids um, and so after you get married like as a woman, that is literally it. Like as a man, you're celebrated every day just for having a penis, like whatever. Um, But every like new car you buy, every new promotion you get, um, you basically, you know, get enshrined. Um, But for women, like, and this is why like this, I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but like, this is why I don't blame women who like, want to have massive bass fucking weddings and like become bridezillas because like literally it is the last time in their lives they like that anything will be about them an article for the beaverton Mm -hmm. and the headline was woman's own life doesn't pass the Bechdel test and like (laughs) (laughs) this this is why you're the funniest person I know that's sweet of you to say and then part of it part way through I say like the last time she had a conversation that passed the Bechdel test was on her wedding day when the hairdresser asked her what hairstyle do you want like that was the last conversation she had that wasn't about a man (laughs) and then because it's true it's like that is the one day women are allowed to be the center of attention like society says like all about her everyone should be looking at her never mind the groom right but that's because 
that's supposed to make up for never ever getting to be special for the rest of your life right so that's a bad deal um it's not a bad deal but Monica gets that like after it's done she understands that and has this come down Uh, and that I thought was a really clever commentary like they're not trying to argue that Monica is fulfilled like now she's been a bride like now she's fixed it's like now she's like well that's anticlimactic right and they do have a good relationship besides that like they're very supportive of each other's careers they go through a lot of obstacles I love like the episode after they get married where like she opens all the presents and she's not supposed to and then he like for very complicated reasons accidentally kisses another woman and they each discover the other's secret and then they say like call it even and they're like okay and they high five like in some ways it's a really realistic portrayal of what you need to do to be successful in a relationship which is like to let things go and move on and just commit and just like yeah like just carry on yeah 100 percent. I mean that's the thing it's like I myself am like fairly deprogrammed and yet I find it absolutely unfair that I am 32 and haven't had a wedding yet not because I want to necessarily get married but because I want all the stuff I want things I want the attention Mm -hmm. I want the reason you know because it's not enough throwing yourself a 33 year old birthday party doesn't read the same culturally as a wedding um and so yeah I don't even want to get married to someone I just want the stuff I want the attention it's the only yeah. time you can command all of your loved ones to be at the same place at the same time and celebrate yeah. really like it's mm-hmm. the only thing where you can guilt everyone you love into flying like whether they live in like Hong Kong or they live like you know 15 minutes away from the venue you can get everyone assembled to celebrate you because and, and no one even begrudges you everyone's like it's your wedding of course we've all been socialized to think that weddings are super important to be there for people's weddings no one's gonna fly across the atlantic to go to your baby shower like yeah even though having a baby in my experience changes your <laughs> life a lot more than getting married does like i love yeah. my husband my wedding was a great day changing your baby having a baby changes your life a lot more and you do need help so that's when it would be probably useful for people to fly <laughs> to be there for you. But you can't send baby shower invitations to somebody in Malaysia if you live in Toronto and expect them to come. Like, but you can send someone a wedding invitation and if they don't come, they'll probably at least feel guilty. Amen. This is the hot take we needed. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Justice. Justice for all these days, except for weddings. Oh, yeah. But I mean, having a wedding is, as someone who's had a wedding, it's great. You get to have an awesome party. I love parties. You get to have, like, I mean, yes, this is, I, you know, I was privileged enough to be able to afford to have a a cool party, um, but, and not everyone can, but it's an excuse to have the guest list you want, right? Like, you know, it's an excuse to invite a bunch of people who otherwise would not show up for your birthday party right because they're friends from university who now live like a 10-hour drive away or whatever right it anyway I do understand Mm -hmm. why people 
get excited for their weddings. Weddings, there are a lot of cool things about it. And I don't even think that it makes Monica a superficial character that she like is so excited to be a bride. The Mm. other thing is like, there are aspects of that wedding that are incredibly realistic. Like at first they conflict about the budget for the wedding and Monica wants to spend like all their savings and Chandler wants to keep money so they can like buy a house, which is sensible. And then eventually Monica realizes like, yeah, I, I want a wedding, but I also want a marriage. So we won't spend all our money. And when I was watching the wedding episode, like they make it very clear. She does her own hair and makeup. Right? Yeah. Like, they write in ways that she economizes. And the show, while in some ways it's very unrealistic um, and these people could not afford all the things that they do, it does pay more attention to the economics of the situation than pretty much any other sitcom. Like, when they say they're going to try to save money, they write into the scripts ways that these people save money on their wedding. Right, because Monica bargain hunts for her wedding dress. Well, yep. Yeah. Exactly. They go on a cheaper honeymoon than they'd initially intended, intended. Like they talk about going to Paris and then they end up going to the Bahamas, which is a bit less expensive, especially if you're traveling from um, New York. Like the show has a lot of continuity in that respect like they actually show you like okay these are two people who while still privileged enough to have a nice wedding do actually cut back in certain ways so like there is a, a degree of realism in the show that I don't know if until I'd rewatched it eight times I gave it credit for yeah 100 percent. there are some things that are written in there and you kind of do have to watch it almost a dozen times to to pick up on these things. Um, I think they had to be really, really subtle in the 90s to get past these like network execs. And I think they had to be really, really savvy. And um, for that reason, like again, like I said in the beginning, I don't think you and I, like I think what we've pointed out about the things that haven't held up about that sh- this show, like it's out there. like. I don't know if anyone's really going to be able to say anything new about what hasn't held up, but I do think there are some savvy points about how it has held up um, that, uh, you know, deserves a bit of credit, but at the same time, this is probably arguably the most popular and most watched show of all time. So it, uh, I mean, it needs defending justice for Rachel. Rachel didn't get enough credit as a feminist character and a precursor to a lot of other characters that have really been celebrated as feminist heroes. Like, um, I mean, Legally Blonde is a film that it's a certain type of feminism that the movie embraces, like rich white lady feminism, but it has been interrogated as a feminist text. People do acknowledge that there is feminism in there. Mm -hmm. I've never heard talking about the feminism of Phoebe or Rachel Green or even how Monica is a critique of traditional sexual politics and like you know the fact that she's obsessed with getting married is like you see her come down from that right like they yeah. don't really give the show enough credit for how it very subtly constructs female characters that have to deal with the politics of what it means to be a successful heterosexual lady. I mean, successful heterosexual middle-class white lady in America. But still, I mean, it it does a lot of work 
that other shows don't do. Yeah, I mean, you also probably wouldn't have the Mindy Project without some of these, without, you know, some of these characters. So yeah, there are a lot of, yeah, I think a lot of shows, a lot of media touchstones have benefited from, you know, friends in this way and people don't really talk about it. Except for us. You heard it here first, guys. Yes. What we're trying to say is, does Friends hold up? Well, they have more than 200 episodes. (laughs) Some yes, some no. But there's something compelling enough about it that people, Gen Z, still love it, right? Like, people are still watching it today. And I think the fact that it understood Chosen Family and it understood the way people's lives were changing and the way they were turning to friends for comfort, for stability, for support. In a way, previous generations, a lot of people hadn't, is insightful. Like, I do think it, it, I do think that that needs to be acknowledged. So that, for me, that part holds up. And another thing that really holds up about it is that I think it really did help pave the way interesting explorations of friendship like pop culture started taking friendship seriously after friends do you get a movie like bridesmaids without friends like i don't know and i think i seriously question whether or not you would right i think that friendship the way like this was a groundbreaking show about friendship that took friendship seriously and the central relationship didn't have to be between lovers the only other show i can think of that did that is laverne and shirley a show that's also very groundbreaking it has never gotten its due um but you know what friends also in a revolutionary way depicted men and women being friends with each other something that when harry met sally had posited couldn't happen right yeah which is outrageous um but definitely was like a lingering you know, mid-century kind of like trope about, um, you know, relationships between the genders um, that I think is, you know, it's still, the conversation is being had, but the show is called Friends. It's not called People Who Wanted to Have Sex with Each Other. Even though some of them did. Some of them did, yeah. But there are, each one, even if they end up with another friend in the group, has other platonic male friends or platonic female friends like they they do have to learn how to be friends with people they don't want to sleep with like yeah 100 percent. and I mean that's the thing it's like Chandler and Monica end up getting married and Rachel and Ross are on again off again on again off again but the rest of them are still friends with each other Mm -hmm. you know like it's not contained to those two couples um so yeah, it's uh, it's good. Yeah, love it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so Kaylee, what is holding you up this week? Okay, this is coming a little bit out of left field, but I watched over the weekend uh, this movie on Netflix called Shit House, which is actually probably one of the best movies I've ever seen, and I never it caught me by surprise. I heard it being reviewed on Vanity Fair's podcast a couple months ago called Little Gold Men. Um, It's a story written, directed, written and directed, and the protagonist is all 
it's all done uh, by this guy named Cooper Rafe, who is telling the story of, you know, a college freshman um, who moves from somewhere in Texas, I think, uh, to California. And he's talking about, you know, his just generally being homesick and not adjusting to his first year of college. And, you know, I originally thought that this was going to be kind of like one of those like manic pixie dream girl kind of stories where he like, you know, the main male protagonist meets this woman and she changes his life through her hairstyle and being cute and it's not like that at all um the female protagonist is played by dylan galula who um she is uh she plays xanthippy in uh the unbreakable kimmy schmidt um and she's like really mean and she's like not that soft and warm of a person um and both characters it's kind of like it's been described as um kind of like um oh what's that Ethan Hawke movie before sunrise oh Um, yeah it's been described as that where it's like you know it's it's um parts of it are like that parts of it aren't where you know it's kind of like unfolding in real time the conversation unfolds in real time the story unfolds in real time um and really like it is a story of like two people pushing each other um, without necessarily really being asked, but pushing each other to, you know, see life from the other person's perspective. Um, And I just, I never thought that like we needed more stories being told about men by men, Um, but this, one is it um and I've watched a lot of other things this week and this is the one thing that I'm choosing to talk about so um I my bar for like suggesting stuff made by men for about men is like really really high um and this passes that mark it's like extremely emotional um and it was like fully worth the hour and 40 minutes or 50 minutes of this film was and um i messaged him on instagram and i was like wow he's like a thousand followers or five thousand like it's he's just very chill presence and i just like messaged him and was like wow your movie like really meant a lot to me like i can't wait to see what you do and he t- he messaged me back it was so cute oh, wow. um, yeah it was really lovely um and yeah, it won best film at South by Southwest. So those are all the things. Um, if I haven't convinced you at this point to like watch this movie, then you're just not going to watch it. But that really held up to me. And uh, I'm really excited to see what else this guy does because he's only 22. He's like very talented. So oh, wow. that um, is a talented 22 year old child. Um, the way he portrays his mom, the mom in the movie is so cute um yeah it's just it's really really great so yeah what about you Sarah what have you what's holding you up this week so what's holding me up this week is the new show it's on HBO Max um Crave in Canada Hacks so it stars Jean Smart she plays a Joan Rivers-esque pioneering female comedian and she's about to lose her Las Vegas residency because she is not updating her material 
So she hires a writer named Ava, who is 26 and used to writing for television. It's interesting. They have a lot of discussions that reveal their generational differences. There are a lot of debates in it um, about feminism, uh, about humor, about comedy. If you love process, like if you love the process of writing comedy, if you're interested in that, you're going to love this show because it gets pretty granular about that stuff. Um, it just also, I mean, Jean Smart is delightful. So I have to recommend it because she, I will watch her watch paint dry. I also have to say that it does a great job with its supporting characters. Most shows don't. And all of the supporting characters on Hacks feel more fleshed out and three-dimensional than I think on most shows you see on TV. This is a world that is fully realized. All of the actors, you know, get their time to shine, even when they get, I would say, relatively minimal screen time. It's, it's well-written, it's lovingly written for its actors as well. So I really highly recommend it. I think it's one of those shows that I'm considering it life-affirming, not necessarily because it's inspirational or I, heartwarming. Like it can be sometimes, but it can also be you know, a little bit depressing. But I do think that it's life affirming because it shows you that every single character there matters and that everybody has a part to play. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's an interesting text. It's a text that really shows you like, we live in a world that is complicated, but that, doesn't mean we can't actually pay attention to everyone in our life on the show to some degree and respect it. I, it's a really respectful show. I highly recommend it. Yeah, I fully binged all six episodes last night and that was gonna be, I was like, oh, do I, do I hold up Shit House or do I hold up Hacks? And I was like, oh, I'll hold up Hacks next week. So I'm so glad that you mentioned it. It's really, really great. I really love it. The um, writer, the producers, are um, uh, Lucia Aniello and her husband, they did a lot of work on Broad City. He played the um, guy who worked at Soul, Soul, uh, Solstice. Um, so if you're familiar with Broad City, like their, their style, their indelible style is also in this show because they're the producers. Also with Jen Stasky, who has done a lot of similar work as well. and. I really, really like it. Um, one of the things that I like the most is the fact that like, I just deep, like Ava is like a deeply dislikable character to me. I don't enjoy her presence on screen at all, but she's incredibly funny. Um, and I really enjoy when there, when, writers are able to portray an unlikable woman who like is unlikable not because like men don't want to sleep with her like there's like th like because that often happens where like a female protagonist is unlikable because she's like I don't know, like ugly or something like it just, the, like she's unlikable because she's like a little bit like kind of like acrid and selfish in her soul. Um, and that's like very relatable. I don't know, not because I'm acrid and selfish in my soul, but because like she just kind of has like shit priorities. 
Yeah. And she doesn't have good decision making. And that's yeah. like very real. Yeah. It yes. It's a great character. I also I mean, a character I love, which is funny because she's kind of a side note, but that actress is a genius, is Ava's agent's incompetent assistant. Oh my god, she's, she's so, so good. She's so funny. She can do so much with a tiny, tiny sentence that they give her in her dialogue. Like one line, it she's cracks you up. I, I can't wait to see more of that actress. She's so talented. Me too. And often, like, yeah, I can't think of another actress who's been given a small role like that and has like broken out, but it's definitely been there. Um, yeah, the show is just like it is pretty perfect. Um, and I'm really excited to see what like the rest of the season is like. So I'm glad that's holding you up because it's holding me up too. That's great. Same yeah. thing's holding us up. Fantastic. Woohoo. All right. So until next week, dear listeners, please take care of yourselves. And hold yourselves up.